Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be using this scripture passage to uh, understand and reflect upon a very important doctrine of the Christian faith, which is the nature of true faith, personal faith. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So the Apostle Paul speaking, and Apostle Paul here is uh, teaching about the nature of faith, teaching about the nature of justification through the lens of his own personal experience. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, please open your order of worship again to the confessional reading element of this catechism service. Today we'll be confessing together Lord's Day 7 of our catechism, which include question and answers 20 through 24. 20 through 24. And again, the Heidelberg Catechism is a document that was written in 1563 to be a helpful and concise summary of God's word, meaning it's not God's word. It's a summary of God's word. So it's open to the scrutiny of scripture. And so the reason why we consider it is we want to be faithful Bereans and, and make sure these things indeed line up with the word of God. And we see that they do. And this catechism has three main structures, or three main sections, guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And this follows the outline of the book of Romans and many of Paul's other epistles. And we are making our way through this salvation or grace section of our catechism. So question and answers 20 through 24. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 20 asks, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No, only those are saved who through true faith are engrafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Question 21 asks, what is true faith? 
True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merits. Question 22 asks, what then must a Christian believe? All that is promised to us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. Question 23 asks, what are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Excuse me, it was question and answers 20 through 23, not through 24. Well, as I mentioned, we are continuing our way through the grace or salvation section of this catechism. And if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you may recall that so far in this grace section, we have considered the atonement of Christ. Christ's death on the cross and the significance of that. So we uh, consider why that was necessary. It was necessary for Christ to die that death on the cross because God is a just and holy God. We also consider why Christ, as this substitute, needed to be both man and God. But so far, we've really only considered, and then we also consider how this, this message of the atonement is a central message of Scripture, from paradise all the way to fulfillment in the new covenant. Now, the overarching question we're considering today is how does this objective historical event namely Christ's death on the cross. How does that personally affect you? Meaning, how does this atonement of Christ go from being Christ died to Christ died for you, Christ died for me? How does this atonement become personal? As you'll see in question 20, we uh, confess this, uh, we, uh, the question 20 asks this very, this very thing. Are all people then saved through Christ as they were lost through Adam? Who are the recipients of this, this gift, this salvation, which Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago? And the answer is that those are, who are saved are those who, by true faith, are engrafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. John Calvin once said that as long as Christ remains outside of us, he remains of no benefit to you and to me. And here... The catechism is picking up on Jesus' language in John 15, how he is the vine and we are the branches. 
And what this Holy Spirit does is he engrafts us into Christ. He effectuates this relationship, this union with Christ himself. And it's within this union that we receive all of Christ's benefits. But the connecting point of the vine and the branch is faith. Faith is the means by which we enjoy union and communion with Christ. Faith is the means by which we receive all these gracious benefits that Christ has accomplished for us. And, and thus, as you can see, faith is very important. And here, we're not, faith is sometimes used in, in different um, senses. So sometimes we refer to the Christian faith, which refers to an objective summary of doctrine. But other times, faith is used to refer to our personal confession, our personal trust in Christ. And so we're using faith in that latter sense. And so today we're going to focus particularly on question answer 21. Question answer 21, the nature of true faith. And i like us to uh, consider four main things that this catechism brings out. Uh, the first thing that we see in question answer 21 about the nature of true faith is that faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Now, where in the answer of question 21 do we conclude that faith is a gift? Which says? I think it's a long sentence. Yes, that it's a grace, right? It's undeserved. That's definitely pointing in that direction. What else? God has freely granted. Granted. How does God grant us faith? Who's more specifically? Who's the doer? Christ. The Holy Spirit. Yes. Notice how it says, "Which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel." So yes, it's it's grace. It's a God's gracious gift through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us this gift of faith. This tells us that faith is not something that we can take credit for. Faith is not something that we can claim as mine. Faith is a gracious gift, like every other part of our salvation. And the Catechism is reflecting what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Now notice what the reference is to the this, and this is not your own doing. Yes, it's salvation, but it also is, the, is, the, is faith. Both salvation and faith are not of our own doing, are not things that we can boast in because they're a gift. They're a gift from God. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, both salvation and faith. Now, as good Protestants, we probably all know that we shouldn't boast in our works of love, our good works, and that before God, our good works do not, do not merit anything. But we can begin to subtly fall into the trap of thinking that faith is something that we can boast in and take credit for. Yeah, I might not be saved by my works of love, but I am saved by my one good work of faith. Faith is the one thing that I can claim as mine. What sets me apart from all those other unbelievers is that at least I had the sense 
to see my need and, and uh, Christ's work on my behalf. And so what we become is we become people who are trusting in one good work as opposed to a whole plethora of good works. But remember what we confessed in question and answer eight of the catechism? Are we totally unable to do any good and prone always to all evil? Yes, unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. So we are totally unable in our natural depraved state to do anything good, which includes faith, which includes having the eyes to see and ears to hear our sin and misery and our need of salvation. And so in order to even profess faith, recognize our need, grab hold of Christ, we need the Spirit to change our hearts. Thus, faith is a gift. It's not something that we can take credit for. We're not those who are saved by the one good work, and that good work is faith. Christ is our salvation, and even faith is a gracious gift from God. So faith is a gift, and you can think of this gift of faith as, as, as um, coming in, in, in a threefold package, as it were. There's three three parts then of this gift of faith. And the first part of faith includes knowledge. So in Philippians chapter three, as I've mentioned, Paul is teaching about the nature of justification and the nature of faith through the lens of his own experience. And at the beginning, he uh, lists off all of these things that he previously boasted in. Remember our sermon from this morning? If you're grading yourself on a curve, Paul definitely would have set the curve. And he lists all of his, 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 his resume, his CV as it were, and he had something to boast in. A Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness, blameless. He had it all. But then notice what we read in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, according to verse 8, why does Paul do this? Why does he count all of these things that he just finished listing as loss? What was that? Yes, that's true. But according to verse 8, what's the, the ground that we see in verse 8? Yes, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So Paul sees part of faith as including knowledge, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, it might seem obvious to us that true faith can't be contentless. It's not as if we place our faith in some abstract deity. We place our faith in the Christ revealed to us in the scriptures. So faith has to include knowledge. But it's not a bare knowledge. Because Paul says that this knowledge is of surpassing worth, which tells us that he assents to the truthfulness of this knowledge. He believes it to be true. He's not like some scholar who can articulate the claims of Christianity but rejects it as uh, some fairy tale or myth. It's of surpassing worth. Now, I would imagine that Paul, before his Damascus Road, a conversion knew the claims of Christianity. I mean, he had probably the best education one could have in the ancient world. But he didn't assent to its truthfulness. He probably could articulate the claims of what the Christians were believing in, but he, th he thought it was ludicrous. It was heresy. But after his conversion, 
He had a different relationship with those claims of Christianity. He assented to them. He believed them to be true of surpassing worth. And so we see here that second part of true faith, which is assent. It includes knowledge, but also includes assent. There are many people today who can articulate the claims of Christianity, but is it true? Do they assent to its validity as being revelation from God himself that actually saves us? Or is it just a story about a man who died 2,000 years ago, may or may not have rose from the dead? So faith is knowledge. It's assent. We have to assent to that knowledge. And uh, we see this in our catechism. Uh, Notice the beginning of question answer 21. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true. So hold as true. That's the assent part of it. It's a knowledge, but it's a knowledge that we hold as true. All that God has revealed to us in his word. This final aspect of faith is trust. Is trust. So question answer 21 goes on to say, it is also a wholehearted trust. It's a wholehearted trust. And the rest of the, the answer then unpacks what it means to wholeheartedly trust in God who has revealed himself to us in Christ. And so this trust is a personal trust. The Catechism says that not only to others, but to me also. Not only to others, but to me also. We don't just trust that Christ died for people out there. We are called to believe that Christ died for you and me particularly. Christ died for me. We are to believe and trust that what motivated Christ in his earthly ministry to resist temptation was so that he could provide you with an alien righteousness so that you could stand before a holy God. He had you in mind as he resisted every temptation in his earthly life. What motivated Christ as he was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading that this cup would be removed from him, and then persevering through that agony and actually drinking the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, what motivated him to do that? So that your sins, the sins that come to mind right now that you committed this week would be paid for. What Christ rose from the dead. Why did he do that? So that you who suffer bodily in this life may have a bodily redemption in the age to come. Not only to others, but to me also. Christ's work was personal. It was particulars for you and for me. And that's what motivated him in every stage of his work on our behalf. And so do you have that personal trust? He did those things for me, for you. I love R.C. Sproul explains this point in a wonderful way. He uses the illustration of a chair. You may have heard of this. Uh, he says, imagine someone builds a chair. And they come up to you and say, well, you know, do you think my chair is sturdy enough to hold someone? And if you respond and say, yeah, I think it's sturdy, but I'm not sitting in it, you have to question whether you actually believe it's sturdy. But if you say, I believe it's sturdy, and I'm willing to sit down on it, that's the true test of whether you trust in the sturdiness of the chair. 
And so have you sat in the chair of Christ? Have you truly thrown yourself upon Christ as the only means of bringing you into his kingdom? So this is a personal trust. This is a personal trust. And in Philippians 3, this passage is, is seeping, dripping with that personal element. I mean, Paul, Paul's faith is, is nothing if it's not personal. He's, he's explaining the nature of justification and, and faith through his own testimony and, and, and conversion. But faith also is this looking away from yourself and looking, or this, this trust is looking away from self and looking to Christ. So the Catechism says, it goes on to, to explain this wholehearted trust. It says that God has freely granted this forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation. And these gifts are purely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. So looking away from yourself and looking to Christ. Now in Philippians 3, where do we see Paul doing this? Where do we see Paul looking away from himself and looking to Christ? Yes. What part of verse 7? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great example. Paul, all these things that he previously boasted in that had been the foundation of his self, as we considered before, this morning, he counted that as, as dung, rubbish, nothing compared, compared to Christ. And then uh, if you just continue reading, Paul continues on on that same note, uh, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, that's rubbish, not having a righteousness of my own which comes through the law, but where does his righteousness come from? Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul here is looking away from himself and looking only to Christ. This, this, this word trust in our catechism actually has connotations of assurance, which teaches us that assurance is at the very heart of, of saving faith. Now, you and I, we've all experienced times of doubt, times in which we've lacked assurance. And so how do we understand that? If the catechism is saying is that, that part of true and saving faith is that we have a wholehearted trust or assurance, what does that mean for us when we have those seasons where we lack assurance, where we have doubts? Does that mean that we don't have saving faith? Does that mean that our, the nature of our faith is up in question? An interesting thing to think about. How do we think about that relationship between assurance and faith? Well, the crux of the issue lies in where you locate your assurance. Because if you locate your assurance primarily inwardly, in your feelings, in your emotions, in your experiences, then you're going to be on a roller coaster. <laughs> And your faith is going to be wholly dependent upon your emotional state every morning. But if you locate your assurance outside of you, 
in the promises of God, which never change, that's when you can have assurance no matter what you are feeling, no matter what your experience of Jesus or God is, no matter how low or high or in between you are in any particular day. That's why we have the, the, the sacraments, so that we can be assured, especially on those weeks when we feel nothing inside. Just as surely as we taste of the wine and, and of the bread, so surely we can know that the inward reality has happened. We've been washed, we've been cleansed, that we're a new creation. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All he says is come. He doesn't make it conditioned upon your experience of rest. If you've come to him by faith, he says you have rest, no matter if you experience it or not, emotionally. Because that's going to ebb and flow. We live in a fallen world. And our emotions, our affections are fallen as well. So the assurance of God is primarily rooted outside of us in, in, in the promises which never change. So far as rooted outside of us, it is the essence of our faith. We can't have assurance every single day because the promises don't change. Well, in this Lord's Day, uh, a question that comes to mind is, okay, if, not, if faith is a gift, and this gift of faith includes knowledge, knowledge that we have to assent to and then trust, what are those things that we have to know, assent to, and trust in? How will you respond to that question according to this Lord's Day? What are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in? <coughs> Which is? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. So the Catechism is, is giving us the Apostles' Creed as a very concise summary of what we need to know, what we need to assent to, and what we need to trust in. And so now for the next uh, 15 Lord's Days, the Catechism is going to, be, uh, going to be explaining each article of the Apostles' Creed as those things that we need to know, those things that we need to assent to, and those things that we need to personally trust. And then faith will, be, will govern the whole rest of the grace section. So 15 Lord's Days to explain the content of faith. And then after it explains the content of faith, we'll consider the benefit of faith, which is justification by faith. Then we'll consider how faith is created and sustained, namely through the word and the sacraments. And then we'll be off to gratitude. So the catechism puts faith as a very central part of its exposition, which really reflects Paul's epistles. Well, as we um, conclude our time together in reflection of, of this passage, let's go to our Lord in a time of prayer uh, with our petitions and asking that the Lord would um, uh, apply these truths to our hearts and lives. So let us pray.